Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So we have another great guest for you coming on. We got Monica Crowley coming on later. Monica is the former assistant secretary of the treasury in the Trump administration. She is currently the host of the Monica Crowley podcast. Looking forward to a wonderful and full ranging conversation with Monica. But first, we want to go back to a topic that we touched on at the end of last week's episode, because there is major, major news. I mean, look, I am someone who spends a lot of time in the big tech space. I write a lot on this issue. I speak a lot on the big tech issue, what to do about the fact that we are living in a woke corporate oligarchy of woke titans of industry that that functionally control our public town square, our means to the online digital marketplace and all of that. Well, there is news that has just broken this week that is probably the biggest news in the big tech space, broadly speaking, in years. I mean, possibly until kind of the phrase big tech even kind of emerged maybe three or four years ago as a thing to talk about. That, of course, being the sealing of the deal. Elon Musk, uh, I, I will be honest with you guys, I did not necessarily see this coming. I thought it was a good faith gesture. I did not necessarily think that Elon would be able to see this thing through to fruition. Sure enough, he has done exactly that. So I, I literally yesterday, this is on Monday, April 25th, Elon Musk closed the deal. It's a $44 billion deal to acquire Twitter. Twitter is not necessarily the most popular social media company in the United States. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, I think, have a much higher percentage of active users. I think the, the statistics that I've seen have the percentage of American adults with a Twitter at roughly around 25%, roughly one in four Americans. But it is disproportionately influential as far as kind of uh, the discourse, so to speak, kind of where people are kind of giving their hot takes, where they're sharing breaking news, things of that nature. Politicians, elected officials, Titans of industry, journalists, you know, uh, all the blue check mafia tends to kind of disproportionately spend time on Twitter more so than the other platforms. Elon Musk, a lot of this kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I think he had criticized Twitter. If you kind of dig between the lines, he definitely has has always been kind of a, a libertarian leaning free speech kind of guy. But his, you know, his criticisms really picked up massive steam over the past few months. And, you know, he kind of had this board fight with the Twitter board of directors. And the last time we spoke on this podcast, the Twitter board had adopted the, the poison pill. But, you know, Elon, by going right to the shareholders, he's given them a massive premium. This is a fantastic deal for the shareholders. And that's kind of what I was saying the last time we spoke was that, you know, there's only if it really is as good of a deal for the shareholders as it looks like it is. And I have no reason to believe that it's not. Then there really only is so long that the board can actually withstand this, that they can actually withhold going through with that because ultimately kind of the company, the officers and directors of the company under American corporate law does have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. So Elon Musk, the world's richest man, kind of a quirky, you know, idiosyncratic, heterodox kind of guy, obviously most prominently known for for Tesla, probably more than anything else, which he miraculously has really turned around 
Tesla really just as recently as four or five years ago at the most, I would say, looked like it had a serious kind of risk of going belly up. Suffice to say, it is doing quite well these days. So this is Elon's new project. And, you know, it looks like he's probably going to take the company private. Twitter has been publicly traded for a while. It has consistently kind of underperformed on the stock exchange. It has consistently not met Wall Street's earnings estimates and things of that nature. And, you know, if you believe Elon Musk, and again, this guy just literally put his money where his mouth is, he's reportedly worth $268 billion, according to Forbes, literally the richest man in the world, buying Twitter for $44 billion, which is, you know, I, I mean, it's a, it's a decent fraction of his net worth. I mean, I, I, the guy has a lot of money left to spare. And by the way, Elon, if you want suggestions and other companies to take over and try to course correct, I have, I have plenty for you. You know, I'm thinking here, obviously, of companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, obviously, those are all going to be more valuable than Twitter, which is kind of an infamously non-profitable, infamously poorly mismanaged company. But it looks like Elon's going to take this thing private. And, you know, uh, we'll see how much he can actually implement from within the confines of Twitter. I think that he'll probably be pretty successful. You know, look, I mean, I've obviously never been kind of the CEO of a company, but a CEO, I mean, I mean, he has obviously the ability effectively to, I, I don't know exactly what, what, what Twitter's kind of leadership structure or bureaucracy or kind of hierarchy or anything like that looks like. But the point is that you can fire basically whoever you want to fire, okay? When you are the 100% owner, when you've, when you've taken the company private, really not a whole lot that you kind of have to, that you have to kind of uh, go in the way of as far as kind of, I mean, you are obviously your own boss. And like Elon Musk himself, I mean, today, he obviously, I mean, he was tweeting about kind of the imperative to bring free speech to Twitter. I mean, he literally was tweeting about that on the day that he just acquired the company. It's a really kind of surreal, it really is a surreal political and really just kind of business and just general kind of news development so he's going to try to, uh, you know, stop the banning, stop the shadow banning, stop the censorship and get Twitter back in the business of being able to platform speech. Really just remarkable. Literally, it looks like Tucker Carlson is now back on Twitter. I mean, like within like hours of the development. I mean, inc incredible stuff. So, the, you know, the big question going forward, and we'll, we'll have to revisit this on a future show. The big question going forward is what does this mean for the other companies? Okay, what does this mean for Facebook? What does this mean for Instagram? What does it mean for kind of Google's own kind of search engine algorithms, which they infamously manipulated, as Dr. Robert Epstein told us a few years ago, kind of speculating. He's this guy's a PhD, he knows what talking about. He was speculating that Google kind of manipulated the 2016 election, millions of votes for Hillary Clinton. So what is this going to mean for all these other woke companies? What is it going to mean for Mark Zuckerberg? Well, I can probably predict that Mark Zuckerberg is not a very happy guy. That is what I am going to be paying very close attention to over over the next week or two is what happens from the other tech platforms. But good for you, Elon Musk. Elon Musk has achieved kind of hero of the Republic status for now, as far as I'm concerned. It is terrible that we are in this situation. We have to kind of beg for, you know, a, a, a mega kind of billionaire to kind of come in, rescue a company and kind of redeem its its founding purpose in this in this particular instance to kind of air all sides. But good for him. Good for Elon Musk. Can't wait to see what happens next. But stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Monica Crowley. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're thrilled this week to bring on Monica Crowley. So Monica was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury during the Trump administration. She's the host of the Monica Crowley podcast. And on a personal note, she's a friend and just a very lovely person. So Monica, thanks so much for joining this week. Ah, uh, what a fantastic introduction, Josh. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. Thank you for having me. And right back at you. I feel very blessed to now have you as a good friend as well. Oh, absolutely. No, it's well-deserved. So, you know, let's dive right in. So you are high up in the Trump administration working for Secretary Mnuchin in the, in the Treasury Department. You've written some wonderful op-eds for us at Newsweek um, on kind of a whole array of issues, but a lot of them kind of focusing on jobs, on the economy. So, how badly has Joe Biden messed up the economy? I mean, it seemed like towards the end of the Trump administration, you know, lowest black unemployment rate in a half century. We were just rolling. But inflation now, obviously, at four decade highs. Kind of walk us through just the various kind of macro and microeconomic metrics. Just just how bad from your perspective is it out there? Sure. And thank you for the question, Josh, because there's not a lot of conversation going on out there about uh, where we are in the U.S. economy, where we're going, but also it's important to know where we've been because the fall off has been really dramatic and it's a direct result of the Biden administration's policies and, of course, Democrats with unified control in Congress as well. Those policies have torpedoed the U.S. economy. Let's take a step back for a second, Josh, and just remember pre-pandemic where we were. The Trump administration was able to deliver a thriving economy, and they did it through four main policy levers. They did it through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, so tax reform and tax cuts in late 2017. They did it through regular regulatory relief. They did it through instituting and negotiating fairer trade deals with key trading partners, including Mexico and Canada, but also the phase one uh, deal with China. And they also did it by unleashing our great energy sector. So those four approaches delivered a booming economy that actually lifted every single American. We saw all kinds of record-breaking things um, across the board, whether it's record-breaking low unemployment for every demographic group, including African-Americans, Latinos, women, Americans with disabilities, we saw everybody thriving in the Trump economy. It was a far more inclusive economy uh, than his detractors want to give him credit for. It was really quite astonishing. Then the pandemic hit. And what we all did was made sure that the American people and America's small businesses and America's industries got through the most acute period of the crisis. So we stood up all kinds of unprecedented programs to get us through. And then once we were through that dire uh, period of the crisis, the economy began to open up and all of those pro-growth economic policies kicked back in. So by the time President Trump handed off the U.S. economy to Joe Biden in January of 21, the economy was really firing again on all cylinders. And we were coming back very, very strong. In fact, President Trump handed Joe Biden the fastest economic recovery from any crisis on record. Now, let's let's figure out where we are today. Well, given that great position that Biden was in, thanks to President Trump, 
we would assume that, okay, well, all he had to do was continue the economic policies, keep it going. And in fact, he did the exact opposite. He threw so many of the successful Trump policies into reverse, starting with the energy sector, killing the Keystone Pipeline, stopping U.S. energy domestic production. All of that fed into, and then all of the conversation about raising taxes and and the additional spending that we saw uh, come March of 21, all of that pumped trillions of dollars into the economy at the exact worst time. It created inflation where none existed before. And now you've got a weakening economy as we're going forward. And you've got all of the elements to it that everybody knows and and unfortunately is suffering with, like skyrocketing inflation, a significant labor crunch, the supply chain crisis, the list goes on and on. None of this materialized out of thin air, Josh. It's all a direct result of the catastrophic economic policies adopted by Biden and the Democrats. Yeah, no, it's really well said. I mean, let's kind of focus on inflation just for a little bit here. Not not necessarily the sexiest topic in the world, but it's certainly a ubiquitous topic. I mean, quite literally, obviously, everyone feels inflation, whether it's at the gas pump or the supermarket or anything like that. And, you know, the reason that I think inflation has always terrified me going back to when I was studying economics as an, as an undergraduate is because prices, prices in our economy are notoriously sticky, you know, meaning that, you know, your wages are just simply not always going to rise, obviously, at the same level as inflation. So when inflation starts to kind of skyrocket and get out of hand, well above the Fed's 2% um, level that it tries to keep it at most year in and year out basis, you're going to feel that. I mean, you are going to feel that in your bank account. You're going to feel that everywhere. So, you know, what should the Fed be doing right now? It seems to me, Monica, you're more of the expert here. It seems to me like they've been a little slow out of the gate on this one, haven't they? A little slow? That is an understatement, (laughs) Josh. Um, Look, I'm not an expert on the Fed, but I do enough. I, I know enough about economics to know that the Federal Reserve has been way, way behind the eight ball for well over a year. If you trace the contemporary inflation that we're all suffering through right now, you can actually peg it to the exact day that Joe Biden signed into law the American Rescue Plan, ARP. That was signed into law in March of 21 because Biden and the Democrats made this political argument that the economy still needed economic support coming out of the pandemic. It did not. Like I said, Trump gave him a huge push and the economy was very strong. It's very resilient. It got back up on its two legs and it was really cooking again. Democrats came in, they used COVID as an excuse to push through about $2 trillion in additional spending. When Biden signed that bill, from that moment on, Josh, you started to see inflationary pressures increase. And it began to really build on itself as inflation often does. It becomes a spiral. You mentioned wages. Yes, people's wages are now going up in the US and that would generally be a good thing. You want people to earn more. However, inflation is so far outstripping your wage growth that you're actually getting a pay cut because it's costing you a lot more to to live and just buy basic items. So again, it's, you know, they call economics the dismal science, as you know, but it is a science and the laws of economics are pretty hard and fast. So when you pump down trillions of dollars into the economy, it's chasing too few goods and services of course, you've got all this extra money sloshing around the system and it creates inflation. 
Now, how much of this is potent ground for Republicans to run on this fall? I mean, I have to imagine that a lot of it is extremely fertile terrain from a political perspective, right? I mean, you know, I think back, obviously, to Jimmy Carville's famous quip, you know, quote, it's the economy, stupid. I mean, you know, like we were just saying, inflation is something that literally everyone feels, and they feel in very painful fashion when we're talking here about the highest inflation rates since the end of the Jimmy Carter administration, obviously going into the early Reagan years when President Reagan worked with, um, you know, Fed Chairman Volcker to, you know, finally slash stagflation and get the economy growing again. But, you know, is there any issue that stands out more than this as far as kind of ample ground for Republicans to kind of run on and retake Congress as well? It seems to me like the lowest hanging fruit possible, honestly. Yes, absolutely. Because again, inflation affects everybody. But here is where the Republicans can really mine a gold mine in terms of the politics of skyrocketing inflation. The Democrats for decades, and they continue to today, they profess to champion the little guy right? The Democrats are all out there and they're championing the middle class and the working class and the working poor. And they say, well, Republicans don't care about you, but we do. Well, inflation is a regressive tax. By that, I mean, it is tantamount to a tax. And by regressive, I mean that it hits those at the lower end of the income ladder most of all. Why? Because they are least able to withstand rising prices. So the middle class, the working class and the working poor that have looked to the Democrats to be their champion this whole time, well, they're the ones bearing the brunt of inflation most of all. So if Republicans are smart, and that's a big if, Josh, because they never (laughs) miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, um, but the messaging and the, the policy positioning that Republicans should be doing from now until November and then beyond into 24 is that Democrats do not care about you at all. They only care about their fellow elite ruling class members who, by the way, are benefiting from higher inflation. The rich actually benefit from inflation. For example, housing, um, the value of housing in America has gone up 20% in the last year because of inflation. So if you're a homeowner and you own a, a big, big sprawling home, you're actually richer today because of the equity that you have in your house because of inflation. But if you are a member of the working class and you're busting your tail all day long and your wages have gone up 3%, but inflation is running closer to 9%, you're in a bigger hole today than you were a year ago. So Republicans really need to message this and talk about it talk about how they're taking inflation seriously and how they're going to stop the government spending, which is exacerbating this inflationary situation. You know, I'm happy you brought up the fact that inflation is a regressive tax effectively, which it absolutely is. It kind of reminds me, though, of a lot of these other, you know, liberal and especially you might say kind of limousine liberal policies that really are just the lofty kind of things that disproportionately favor the wealthy and really just redound against the interests of the working class. You know, I'm thinking uh, of issues here like climate change, you know, which disproportionately obviously hamstrings people in the coal mines and, you know, in the factories and all of that. I'm thinking here of issues, obviously, like defund the police, kind of the quintessential limousine liberal issue. Obviously, who's that going to hurt? It's going to hurt people working and living in kind of urban centers and cities. So, you know, I I, kind of want to get your thoughts on that and how the Democrats have really just kind of in recent years, at least over the past 5, 10, 15 years or so, increasingly just so far removed from the interest 
matters of kind of the median day-to-day American worker. But we're going to take a very quick break here. So stay with us. We'll be right back. But on the other side, Monica, I want to get your thoughts on that. So this is the Josh Hammer Show. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Monica, I kind of just would love your, you know, your thoughts on that. I mean, it really does seem like the Democrats who once were the party of kind of the working man, right? I mean, Joe Biden from Scranton, Pennsylvania, we've heard that story a million times. They're just so far removed from the interests of the median American at this point in the year 2022, aren't they? Yeah, and it's a very interesting political dynamic that's been going on now for for quite a while, where the the split in America and really in the Western world, you're seeing this with the French election coming up this weekend. You saw it with Hungary and their recent election with the rise of the populists like Trump, like Orban, like Le Pen. It, it is it, there is something going on in the West where. Um, The split is less about right versus left or red versus blue than it is the ruling class versus everybody else. I love that so much. Amen. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Amen. Amen. No, and it's 100 percent true. And it's been going on and developing for quite a while. And what's been fascinating here in the U.S. is that the Democrats have aligned themselves with the ruling class rather than being the champion of the little guy, as they always um, used to talk about. You know, I remember my grandparents who, um, you know, they were they were very young during the Great Depression, but they certainly remembered it. And I remember my grandfather saying, yeah, well, you know, the family voted for Roosevelt because of, you know, the the New Deal and um, all of the stuff that was helping the working man and how it's all just completely flipped around because the Democrats have aligned themselves with the elite ruling class in America, in America, whether it's the university system, the media system, the culture, Hollywood elite, um, the, the, you know, the cultural elites and so on. They have aligned themselves with the moneyed ruling class to the exclusion of the working folks. And it was Donald Trump who really saw the opportunity there to go in and talk to the forgotten man and woman. You know, Josh, I was uh, President Trump's very first supporter in the media, literally about 72 hours after he came down the escalator. I remember being on Fox News and everybody was having a good laugh. And I said, you know, stop laughing. Do not underestimate him. He's going to win the whole thing. And the reason why I thought that at the time is because Trump was smart enough to see the opening and he had always been authentically the blue collar billionaire. Right. So he was always just who he was, which was 
a guy who built, you know, billion dollar buildings in New York City, but he was always more comfortable with the workmen on his projects than he was with the foremen on his projects. So I saw that he would be an authentic voice that would resonate with the forgotten man and woman. And in 2015, 2016, he did something I have never seen a politician do authentically and organically. He created an emotional bond with the forgotten man and woman, not a political bond, not an intellectual bond, an emotional bond, because he said a couple of things to them. He said, I see you, I hear you, and I will be your champion. And so they took a leap of faith. It was Democrats and independents, as well as Republicans, who took a leap of faith with this guy and said, well, we hope he's not lying to us like every other politician. We hope he will actually deliver for us. He spent the next four years delivering for them with fairer trade deals and confronting China and listening to their economic insecurities and uncertainties and making sure that they had firmer ground to walk on in the future economically, he delivered for them. So Trump saw that he he didn't create the wave, but he effectively rode the wave and he still does. And I do not understand my fellow Republicans who have not taken Trump up on that. They're still worried about what the mainstream media is going to say about them. They're still worried about what the elites are doing. No, you pay attention to the forgotten men and women. Um, because they are the backbone of the country. And they are the ones that have created this political realignment. This is also why, Josh, you see the Democrats hemorrhaging support among their formerly core constituencies, Black voters, Latino voters, women. They're all moving away from the Democrats because the Democrats have not put their interests first. They put their own interests first, and their economic dependency on China ahead of their fellow Americans. That has been a huge political mistake, but they continue to press on because remember their grand project is the Great Reset. It is about remaking the US economy. So they don't give a flying wit about any of us. They are on like this ideological jihad to remake the country. Wow. I mean, ideologically or ideological jihad to remake the country. I mean, wow. Potent stuff. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, honestly. I mean, you know, look, the way that you phrase this as kind of we the people versus the ruling class, I mean, that's kind of been a leitmotif of my commentary on a personal level for the past two or three years now. It's just so blatantly obvious to me that that is the situation that we're in. And, you know, just a few days ago, very recently, I was I was up in New Haven. I had a couple of debates at Yale and I, I was debating Dan McLaughlin of, of National Review uh, on so-called, quote unquote, common good conservatism. And one of the questions, I can't remember if it was the moderator or one of the students, they asked about populism and, and, and the extent to which conservatism is populism, vice versa, and so forth. And, you know, I think a lot of folks that we might you know, uncharitably deride as quote unquote conservatism, Inc. are very quick to say that, you know, there's no populism or populist sentiment whatsoever in conservatism. But, you know, it was William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review magazine, obviously for decades and decades, the flagship of the modern conservative legal or the modern conservative movement. 
He famously said one time that he would rather be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston, Massachusetts phone book than the 2,000 members of the Harvard University faculty lounge. That, that's a pretty popular sentiment in a lot of ways. So, and, and, you know, obviously over the course of the ensuing decades, the left kind of completed its Gramscian march through the institutions. They captured higher ed, Silicon Valley, Fortune 500, the boardrooms, the classrooms, you name it. They, they, they've captured it all. So at this point, that really is the situation that we're in. And I, I was just so happy to hear you laid out there so clearly. I, I just so strongly agree. But I, I, I want to pick up on a personal note of your biographies, because when we got lunch recently and, you know, you've written about this, I know, quite publicly as well with your background with President Nixon. I, I think President Nixon was very prescient on a lot of this. Right. I mean, I, my reading of President Nixon, especially kind of his kind of, you know, uh, kind of culture war, law and order kind of platform in 1968. I think he really saw a lot of this kind of we the people versus the ruling class dichotomy coming. And I, I think especially he probably foresaw that the Republican Party and, you know, the American right in particular would come to stand for we the people against the ruling class. Do you kind of tie those lines from Nixon to Trump that kind of cleanly like that? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was very blessed to be able to work for both of those American presidents, President Nixon during the last years of his life, and of course, President Trump at the Treasury Department. And I always joke, Josh, no controversial, only controversial presidents for Monica, no boring presidents for me, okay? <laughs> only only the most controversial. Um, but it is true that Nixon was the first modern president to see what Trump really exploited uh, what, 40 years later when he ran for president, which is this idea that the forgotten men and women were really being left behind by the beginnings of globalization, which really did start in the Nixon era. Um, it was nascent back then in the late 60s, early 70s, but it really, really did begin then. Nixon came from very, very poor family. In fact, one of the famous stories about Richard Nixon is that he um, was uh, he was accepted at Harvard. He lived in California. He grew up in the orange groves of Southern California. He was accepted to Harvard as an undergraduate, including a full scholarship, but his family could not afford to send him across the country to get there. So he ended up going to a local uh, California college and then on to Duke Law School on a full scholarship. But he came from nothing. So he really understood People who worked hard, raised their families, had faith, loved America, and he was their champion. But I think that it is 100% true that that appeal that then you saw later with Reagan and then later with Trump, um, the, the working class appeal, Nixon really began. And they called them Nixon Democrats. Remember, Josh? They were Nixon Democrats that then became Reagan Democrats that then became Trump Democrats and will probably be Trump Democrats again, um, should Trump decide to run again. So that realignment uh, really did begin with Richard Nixon and the smart Republicans, and they're few and far between, but the smart re Republicans like Trump, like Ron DeSantis here in Florida, they get it and they maximize their messaging and their policies to serve those Americans because they understand that's why they're elected. It's not to count out to China. It's not to bend over backwards for the New York Times editorial board. It is to serve their constituents, also known as the American people. 
So you, you mentioned Governor DeSantis there. I mean, look, I'm a huge fan of his personally. That's, I think that's no secret. I've written about him, um, you know, a, a fair amount. Do you think that he fits neatly into this kind of Nixon, Reagan, Trump kind of more kind of populist wing of the conservative movement, do you think? I do. Yeah. From what I've seen and I've gotten to know him, I met him a couple of years ago at an event and now we're spending a lot of time in Florida. So I've been with him at different events and actually spoke at an event uh, right after him, which I do not advise anyone to do because uh, he was a very, very tough act to follow. (laughs) Um, I I do. Look, he is like he's very smart. He's very politically savvy, but he also understands that he is governor of the entire state of Florida and he is there to serve Floridians. And every policy move he takes is in service of them and their constitutional rights and their economic freedom. That's what he is all about. And he's he's like a, a working guy. You know, he's yeah. he in many ways like Trump without a lot of the Trumpian drama, but he is there serving the people who elected him and he's doing it so effectively and he stays on offense, which is exactly what we need. Yeah. No, I mean, and speaking of the offense, I mean, I would love your take on Florida versus Disney. I mean, it's kind of uh, this quasi hilarious, but also very serious showdown that's kind of unfolding before our eyes in this special legislative session, you know, with, with Florida Republicans trying to strip away some of Disney's kind of extra legal privileges that they've had for a half century or so. And this obviously kind of, you know, for the listeners, this goes back, obviously, to Disney's intense lobbying against the parental rights and education bill that, you know, the the mainstream media, the corporate press, the Democratic Party were able to largely successfully, I think, you know, uh, get this uh, obtuse pejorative, the quote unquote, don't say gay bill, just ridiculous kind of, you know, mislabeling, obviously. But, you know, uh, Monica, do, do you think the Republicans here in Florida are overplaying their hand on this or, or, or do you like what's happening? No, I absolutely love it. Look, voters want to see fighters. This is one of the big reasons why Donald Trump won in 2016 and why, yes, he was a controversial president, but he stood up and fought back against this relentless onslaught of whether it's economic Marxism or in this case, cultural Marxism, Josh, it is coming at us from every direction and it's bending the country. And the American people want to see leaders who have a backbone to stand up to it and say no. And that is exactly what Ron DeSantis is doing. He is fighting the culture wars, which most Republicans are terrified to do. All right. They don't want to be creamed in the culture. They don't want, you know, Rob Reiner on Twitter making fun of them. DeSantis doesn't care. He said, I am standing up for what's right. And what's right is protecting our children against this cultural Marxism that seeks to destroy the nuclear family by sexualizing and confusing children. I mean, it is straight up child abuse. DeSantis sees it and he is standing up to one of the biggest mega corporations in the world. But here's Disney supposedly in the children's business that has now embraced this. Why? Because Disney leads the charge on ESG Um, So many other companies have gone down this road too. Coca-Cola, Delta, remember during Black Lives Matter, and they were all funneling tens of millions of dollars into BLM and all this nonsense because the inmates run the asylum in these institutions and because they are completely beholden to China. That economic dependency, the CCP is running this whole playbook and all of these great once great American companies have bought right into it at the expense of the American people. 
Yeah, no, it's really appalling stuff, honestly. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the point to emphasize, and I'm happy you raised this, I mean, Disney is supposed to be a children's entertainment company. You know, I would think that a company that, you know, holds itself out as the kind of the, you know, the chief company with, with respect to kind of entertaining children, being there on the VHS, DVD, the Netflix, whatever the kids are watching these days, that, you know, as, as these kids mature and get old, you would think that they would care about protecting their innocence until a somewhat reasonable age. Obviously, I think Disney has exposed itself. And, you know, obviously, this is not a unique to Disney problem, as you very well note, you know, as, as Chris Rufo has exposed over and over again. This rod is just running all through the Fortune 500. And, you know, look, I do think folks like Governor DeSantis, like President Trump, they understand that in the year 2022, in the 21st century, tyranny does not exclusively come from the public sphere. I mean, government tyranny is obviously a very, very real thing as any student of history like you and I, I you know, we can obviously tell you that tyranny can absolutely happen and it has happened time and time again from the public sphere but it also can happen from the private sphere through kind of cultural marxism or kind of just insidious kind of corporate tyranny but you know monica you and i could talk for hours and hours unfortunately we're gonna have to wrap it up here but where can the listeners find you and your new podcast well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. And you will be a guest on my podcast in pretty short order. So I look forward to that. You can find my podcast wherever you download podcasts. It's called the Monica Crowley Podcast, which isn't particularly creative, but it does get to the point. And we've got no time to waste in America these days. So <laughs> the Monica Crowley Podcast. And uh, please find it wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, just a type it right in. It'll come up. I'm doing it three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, new podcast drop. So I think you will really appreciate. We talk about a lot of smart subjects about what's going on in America and the world. And we have a lot of fun while we're doing it too. Well, I can't wait to appear on it and have some fun with you, but this was very fun as well. So thanks so much for joining Monica. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Josh. Thanks. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, Monica and I talked there a little bit about Governor DeSantis and Florida Republicans and Florida as a potential roadmap going forward, specifically what the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis in particular, really, to his immense credit, have been able to do as far as actually executing an act of punishment, an act of punishment. Now, in this case, the act of punishment happens to be a leveling of the field. Um, it's, it's revoking an extra legal privilege. You do not have a First Amendment right to an extra legal privilege, by the way. That's the exact same thing with Section 230 in the big tech censorship context. These tech platforms have no constitutional right to an extra legal privilege, which is Section 230 immunity. So, you know, Monica and I were talking there about Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida kind of understanding the stakes of this civilizational battle, of this battle that we sane Americans, that we people who just want to kind of go 
to synagogue or church over the weekend who just want to kind of live our lives work to put bread on the table, you know, without kind of the crime that's run, run amok that we talked about kind of last week with, with, with the whole kind of criminal justice reform, civilizational arson nonsense. Come Americans who don't want our children to be indoctrinated into self-hating critical race theory garbage that, that is trying to teach third graders their spirit murdering their children. No, uh, the majority of Americans just want to go about their lives. The problem, the problem is that the woke titans of industry, corporate America, no matter where you look, again, as our friend Chris Rufo has shown time and time again, he's doing yeoman's work, Chris Rufo out of Washington State. They've shown time and time again how the woke companies just won't do it, that they are getting their hands dirty in the political business. Disney has done that. And therefore, it is a quintessentially just act of punishing conservatives' enemies, not just punishing conservatives' enemies, punishing the enemies of people who care about not scandalizing and prematurely sexualizing our children. You know, I thought the Walt Disney Company, of all companies, should care about that. I think if Walt Disney were still alive, he would care about that. So good for Florida, of course, good for Governor DeSantis, good for our legislature down here in the Sunshine State. I was happy to see that Monica and I are on the same page on that. Nonetheless, Nonetheless, you see all these shrieks of hysteria, these cries of, oh, how dare they? The Vichy conservatives, the surrender cons, rhinos, conservatism, Inc., no matter what you want to call them. We know who we're talking about here, okay? I'm thinking here about people like Jeremy Boring, the CEO and self-professed, quote, God King, unquote, of the Daily Wire. I'm thinking here of people like my friend, Jen Ellis, former counsel to President Trump, people on the right who really should know better, who choose now to get on a high horse about principle, about the need to stand by, quote, First Amendment precedent. Apparently, there is something to be said for First Amendment precedent. Not apparently. I mean, I, I know I, I've read the cases. I know what I'm talking about here. There is some precedent indicating that punishing a company as a retaliatory act can be seen as a First Amendment violation if it has the effect of chilling that company's free speech. If the company kind of spoke out against the government and you retaliate, blah, blah, blah. To the extent that that is Supreme Court precedent, that precedent is wrong. And that precedent should be overturned. And as a constitutional matter, every elected official in the United States, at both the federal and the state level, in the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch has an independent oath to interpret the Constitution according to his or her own best abilities. More relevant, and even more to the point here, this is an inflection point. The right is finally pushing back on an issue. We have finally seized the high ground and put our money where our mouth is by taking away an extra legal, not constitutionally guaranteed privilege to the Walt Disney Company. So to have the chutzpah of firing right, if you are on the so-called right at this time, I think is pretty close to unforgivable. We are finally starting to push back in the culture war. Do not choose now to fire right. <laughs> 